Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers scenes involving the non-Lara subplots of Season 1, Episode 7. For the non-Lara subplots, we have the Packard family life. Nothing in this episode. You know, we have a nice moment with Pete, but there's nothing between him and Catherine in particular, or, or even their relationship with Josie. For the Briggs family life, we have Shelley uh, saying that she called the Briggs house looking for Bobby. She says, your dad answered, I didn't know what to say. And I love that moment that's just like, you know, we think of Major Briggs off in his silo and Shelley off in hers. Like, uh, what would be the interaction between these two characters? These two totally different aspects of Bobby's life. And that's all we get of the Briggs this episode. There's nothing for the Horn family life this episode. Uh, for the Ghostwood Packard sawmill plot, a fair amount this episode, although it seems like it's mostly setting up stuff for the finale. For the Icelandic investment, we see Ben and Jerry having beer and ice cream with the Icelanders singing a song. And uh, this is surprising because it's 36 minutes into the episode. Usually these episodes are able to set up their plots a little earlier. This is like almost a sudden jolt into left field. Oh, yeah, that's right. The horns and the Icelanders. We forgot about all that. And Jerry keeps talking about how they worship trees, that he caught some of them hugging pines. It's just fun. For the Millfire subplot, we have Josie showing the photos of Ben and Catherine to Harry. And for a moment, I found myself wondering, like, why is she telling Harry about this? Um, clearly, she wants to set up the idea that Catherine is the one to burn the mill. They want it to look like arson. As Ben told Leo, I want it to read arson and, you know, capital letters, whatever. But I think that's Ben's plan with Catherine, too. Like, uh, that, 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 as far as she knows, they want it to be arson, but they want it to look like Josie did it to cover up that the mill wasn't making a profit or whatever. So they're all, you know, this, this is everybody's plan. It's just a matter of who's actually going to get blamed. So we've already seen Ben plot with Catherine against Josie and then Ben plot with Josie against Catherine. It's worth pointing out that Josie's stuff is like on top of this. You know, this plot is so complicated to talk about, but whatever he's planning with Josie seems to be over and above. So it seems like the real plan is with Josie. But of course we thought that before with Catherine, we have Harry telling Cooper why Josie's so paranoid. And he mentions that Ben and Catherine have been seeing each other for years. I love these little moments where it's like, oh, yeah, everybody knew that. Yeah, that wasn't a big surprise, this thing that's been presented to us as this big secret. And then later, one of my favorite episodes, this our favorite scenes this episode, we have Neff, the insurance man, telling Catherine about insurance. He says, you know, hey, I forgot to get your signature. And, of course, she plays along. Oh, what's this on? Oh, you know, your life insurance policy, the one that... Ben Horn and Josie Packard get out for you. Of course, it's delivered much better than that. It's, it's one of my favorite pieces of dialogue, the way Peyton has this exchange where clearly Neff knows that uh, something's wrong and that she was be basically probably being set up. And she kind of knows that he knows, but they have this exchange between them. So she says, uh, well, uh, there's a few things I want to go over with my attorney. I, I think uh, I'll hold on to it. And he gives her this knowing look. He says, well, if there's anything you need, and then he melds anything. It's like, there's no need to do that. Nobody's watching them, but it's like he knows he can't say this explicitly. That's just not how you do things in a film noir. And of course, this whole scene is uh, pulled, basically, the, the whole concept pulled from uh, double indemnity. Actually, not quite, because in that film, the wife is bringing an insurance man on to help her kill her husband. And in this, the insurance man is actually sympathetic to somebody who's about to be killed uh, by a lover. So we have them kind of coming together in that sense. It's just a wonderful moment. And I love the way Catherine says, are you an ambitious man, Mr. Neff? And he responds, one likes to think so. And she says, one never knows. 
there may be a few T's left to cross. And of course, Piper Laurie delivering that is just uh, glorious. And she goes to check and see if the ledger is in the space. And of course it's not. And she told Ben about it. So she's freaking out. Think, think, what do I do? Think. It's, it's great. So she's heading somewhere. We don't know where yet. Ben calls Josie up at the uh, Blue Pine Lodge and uh, asks her, you know, is Catherine there? She said, no, Catherine's gone. He says, okay, we're all, or she asks if we're all set for tonight. And he says, yes. So all of these characters are coming together. It's kind of amazing. All these characters, I would say the characters who are not, at least not yet really directly involved with Laura's uh, murder are all circulating around this Packard Simon thing. So it's it's great. It's it's fun because it's like another thing that brings characters together. Even if the plot's kind of convoluted and hard to follow and a big MacGuffin and who cares, uh, it's a great way to keep all these characters in orbit. So I kind of love it for that. For the Shelley, Bobby, and Leo subplot, we have Leo spying uh, from his... his uh, he's sort of parked across the street or something. He's spying on Bobby who is uh, entering the house with Shelly. And so that's when he finally discovers they're having an affair. It's been sort of suspected all along, but now he's he's got his confirmation. Bobby goes inside the house, and Shelly is just totally distressed, weeping. And I love Machinomics acting in this episode. This is an episode with a ton of great performances. I mentioned Catherine. I mentioned Audrey Cooper, my favorite Cooper episodes. But you could make a case this is the best acting in this episode. What she does here with Bobby is just so real and raw and genuine. And there's actually an interview with her and Kyle McLaughlin and David Lynch where he just turns to her and he's like, I really thought that this is like 17 years later. He's like, that piece of acting was amazing you did there when you were frightened of Leo. I just remember being really affected by that. And I love the rustling of plastic. That's one of the first thing that comes to mind when I talk about the sound design in this episode that Deschanel employs. There's this rustling of plastic, which of course is cool, first of all, because it suggests the kind of vulnerability of this house. All they've got is plastic protecting from the outside. It calls to mind this whole outside world and it's kind of dangerous and it's plastic which laura was wrapped in in the pilot so they've used that before with shelly when she's sort of pushed into it by leo before he hits her and uh so it's always kind of this motif there so that's all great we also see leo's arm was grazed and is bandaged so uh he you know that, that he was shot in the arm we didn't see where she shot him we just heard him and run away so now we know. And finally, he drives off for other reasons. So he isn't going to shoot Bobby and Shelly because of the whole Waldo thing. For the James and Donna romance, we have almost nothing this episode. Like, we have a lot of material with them, but it's just not on their romance. It's all about the Laura's therapy and investigating uh, her relationship with Jacoby. But we have that one moment where Donna notices James' reaction to Maddie. And I think that's our reminder that... There's this sort of personal thing at stake between them two with all this other stuff going on. For Nadine's drape runners, we have a wonderful little scene where Ed comforts Nadine about her drapes. She took them to a patent office and uh, they rejected her and she's just heartbroken. And uh, I can't remember which podcast it was. I think it was probably the Diane podcast. They have a great discussion about the sort of gender expectation role reversal here where Nadine wants to be the breadwinner for the household and she's just really upset that she can't prove herself that way she was talking about the things she was going to buy for them and wants to take care of ed and it's just kind of touching it's a nice little moment and also funny is nadine is often funny you know watching invitation to love and 
Uh, it's it's just a nice uh, a nice little scene. There's a lot of crying women in this episode. Audrey, Shelley, Nadine. Don't know what's going on with that. Uh, I think Lynch likes he he likes to have women cry in his films, but I don't know how much he had to do with this episode. For the Ed and Norma storyline, uh, the only thing we have related to that is in the diner. Uh, Hank kind of coaxes Shelly into admitting that Norma was spending a lot of time with Ed because he says, oh, she'd call me in prison and tell me about who was helping her out all the time. You know, Pete was like a big help. And she's like, Pete, what do you mean? Like, oh, no, can't remember his name. What's his name? Oh, you mean Ed? Yeah, Ed. And it's like, oof, come on, Shelly, you got to do better than that. And speaking of Hank, for the Hank on parole story, uh, which is always on the verge of breaking out into these other stories as well, but hasn't quite gone there yet. Hank, you know, is, is as he has that scene with Shelley, where he's talking about life in prison, and Norma's watching him and kind of like, okay, he seems to be on his best behavior. She kind of watches from the kitchen. Cooper and Harry drop by, and Harry is, like, very stern with Hank. There seems to be some water under the bridge there. And uh, Hank, as always, just has his, like... Passive-aggressive, cheerful, ear-to-ear grin, provocative way about him, you know. Hey, Harry, welcome. We'll give you a free lunch. And he's just, Harry's pissed, you know. And Harry tells him the reason he's coming there is he's gonna, he, he wants him to make sure he's going to visit his caseworker every Friday. And uh, Hank's like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Walks away. And Harry says to Cooper, you think people ever change? Before Cooper has a chance to answer, he says, I don't. So Cooper's getting some nice little glimpses into sort of Harry's uh, personal life, not to get too far off track, but, uh, you know, between the Josie stuff and the Hank stuff, he's sort of observing, like, okay, Harry's got these sort of axes to grind or these, uh, you know, he's he's got these problems. There's, by the way, a beautiful establishing shot of the Double R Diner in this, in this scene. Uh, it has been seen before in episode two, but uh, it's just, Oh, it's it's gorgeous. It's like it almost looks like it's like painted or something. This mountain in the background and the truck driving by with the logs, just A plus. Finally, for the Hank and Pearl storyline uh, subplot, we have that scene with Josie where she's getting a call from Ben, and we hear it boom, boom. You know, Hank's theme building on the soundtrack and we see this sort of elbow in the corner and it pulls back and sure enough there's hank in his leather jacket smiles and wags his finger at josie i think he's a really good villain some people don't care that much for hank but uh, i'm always fascinated by his character and the way that uh, chris mulkey plays him Uh, speaking of josie we have the josie and harry subplot so harry arrives at the lodge he's been waiting to talk to josie and uh, for a couple days now at this point and find out, you know, why the heck she was at the motel. She, she hasn't been able to find out yet. He was busy all the previous day going out to the cabins and the woods and stuff. And Pete sort of stops him for a moment as he's waiting to see Josie and shows him a big fish that's been stuffed. It's just a nice moment. They had to put Pete in this episode somewhere. So I think they found a moment to write him in where he says, I guess by the time they take the innards out and put the stuffing in, it loses something in translation. So a nice little fish tale with Pete. As Josie talks to Harry and first tells him, oh, I, I, was, uh, I was at the motel for, you know, I, I'm worried, I think, because I think uh, something might be going on. Uh, we know, this is the first time we know she's lying. I mean, she lies to him initially, says, I wasn't at the motel, and he kind of forces her to say it. But we know, even at this point, she's lying. This is a new sensation. Up until now, we've had every reason to believe Josie was on the level. And it's only that scene with Ben at the end of episode five that's like, whoa, this is a totally different character than we thought. 
So we're kind of in like a weird limbo purgatory state with her. I don't know. So Harry later tells uh, Cooper about Josie, about everything they discussed there that, you know, he wants to protect her and everything. And uh, Cooper asks him, how much do you know about her? Where she's from, who she was before. And Harry says, I know I love her and she's in trouble. And so Cooper's like, hey, that's good enough for me. I love how uh, all these different romances going on in Twin Peaks, they're playing to multiple audiences at once. And I've seen, I think, coverage of this, talking about it at the time, how it's like they're going for the older soap audience, they're going for the young teens, they're going for sort of the hipsters, they're going for everybody in with various aspects of the show. And there were people who watched this, followed it in Soap Opera Digest that watched it as a soap opera. It worked on that level for them, you know? And it, it seems like they're almost kind of going for the Dynasty thing and the 90210 thing. Uh, because my impression is that the Dynasty, Dallas, those types of soap, soaps, they stuck more with like 30-something and up mature relationships rather than young heartthrob type stuff, which was probably more the provenance of daytime soaps or like, you know, the 90210 type, Melrose Place type things. Uh, if any listeners know if that's true or not, let me know. And maybe I'm way off on that, but I don't think of those primetime soaps as playing to like the youngest audience, the teens and the early 20s kids. Usually they're like older actors doing it. For the Bobby Killed the Guy subplot, nothing this episode. Uh, for the subplots introduced, in ep- the non-Lara subplots introduced in episode one, we have the Cooper and Audrey flirtation. Uh, of course, that opening scene, which we listened to and talked about, uh, Cooper telling Audrey that they'll be friends. That's basically the gist of it. So after the part that was cut off there, he's telling her, they'll talk about her secrets. She's going to get dressed. And, and she says, friends. And he says, yeah. This whole dynamic is interesting, the way that he handles this. Because on I remind, it makes me think of how on Hill Street Blues, the show that Mark Frost wrote for uh, before Twin Peaks for many years, there were like a ton of adult teen relationships for some reason. And younger teens, like not 18, like minors, basically. There's a whole episode with Ali Sheedy where she's like a schoolgirl who shows up at the police offices and like really flirtatious. And they kind of play it off for laughs. Like, oh, is this guy going to do anything with her? And he ends up not. But they're like playing pranks where like her father comes to the station is like i'm gonna sue you and then it's actually an actor they hired and they're all just laughing like isn't it funny he was gonna do this it's like kind of a very 70s 80s mentality and there's the esther sergeant esterhouse character on that show too has like a whole long relationship i think he ends up almost marrying the 17 16 or 17 year old and he's like a 55 year old man who's like shown as this sort of respectable it's this weird like kind of woody allen thing going on um, in Hill Street Blues. So it's interesting that in Twin Peaks they introduce this element, but then they handle it a little differently. Worth pointing out, too, those elements of Hill Street Blues were uh, before Frost time, so I don't know how much that, that was a subject that he addressed. We have nothing for cocaine in Twin Peaks, the criminal activity, or the police bookhouse boys investigation sides. For the episode two subplots, we have Ben and One-Eyed Jacks. They decide to plan him and Jerry plan a signing party at One-Eyed Jack's. And there's a weird moment where Jerry's like, oh, they want to go to Jack's. And Ben's like, uh, how did they know about One-Eyed Jack's? And Jerry's like, oh, I'm sorry. I take full responsibility. But a few episodes ago, Ben was the one who mentioned bringing them to One-Eyed Jack's. I don't know if that's a writerly oversight or if maybe Ben just wanted to offer it as a reward rather than an incentive to get the Icelanders to sign the contract because they're really delaying, delaying on doing that. They're having so much fun partying. They haven't gotten down to business yet. For the invitation to love subplot, 
one of my favorite uh, little details about this episode, look closely at the Horns department store, the perfume counter. They have a cardboard cutout of Emerald, the character from Invitation to Love, and a little placard that says Invitation to Love. So they're like promoting the show within Twin Peaks. It's like a national soap opera. I love that. That's such a cool, fun little world building detail, again, to the whole Disneyland aspect of the show. We also have Nadine watching uh, Chet on the show, the sort of nerdy character shoot montana the big tough guy and she says you show them chet you show all of them and so there's a fun connection there she's making with this guy i i you know this this sort of uh awkward underdog as i think she identifies she's really a fascinating character i don't think i liked nadine the first time i watched the show i just found her too off-putting wendy roby the actress who plays her does such a great job embodying the pathos and the absurdity of her at the same time. Just wonderful. And uh, later on, we have Jacoby watching Invitation for Love. We have a, a scene with Montana, the bad guy, tormenting Jade. It's to old times, Jade. And then, of course, Laura calls Jacoby. I mean, they are very on the nose about this stuff. And you either hate it or you enjoy it. I, I get a kick out of it. They have a lot of fun making these soap opera scenes just completely reflect whatever's happening in Twin Peaks. And there's a self-awareness here. I talked about a moment ago how there were people who would read Soap Opera Digest and follow Twin Peaks as, as a conventional soap in a way, even though it had all these quirky elements to it. And I, I feel like sometimes the creators were a little uncomfortable with that. And this is their way of sort of poking fun at it and saying, hey, we're not one of those soap operas and kind of winking to the more in-the-know people in their audience. This ties back also to an article I read a few weeks ago where they're talking about how people might read some of the scenes as black comedy and others might take it more seriously and is Lynch getting half of his audience to laugh at the other. It's worth noting, though, this was not a Lynch thing. Frost shot Invitation to Love, and uh, we'll get into it more in later episodes, but Lynch had a different feeling about Twin Peaks as a soap opera, and it was not nearly as sort of ironic or arch. From the subplots uh, introduced in episode three, uh, those have been pretty dormant. The Harry-Albert rivalry, this is the second episode of Nothing on that, and the third episode of Nothing about Andrew's death, which was set up in the pilot in episode one and then kind of became a potential ongoing plot. Up from the subplots introduced in episode four, we have the Andy and Lucy plot, where Lucy brushes Andy off uh, when he comes in in the morning. It's just this nice sort of quiet, soft-spoken scene where he's like try trying to get her to tell him what's wrong and she won't do it and she gets a call and uh, as he walks away we find out it's a doctor calling her she got some test results back I think and she's like oh all right and she just so we have to wonder does this have anything to do with her difficulty with Andy I don't know and this is uh, really one of the uh, one-off scenes in the episode where we're getting a, a you know, it's an ongoing storyline, but this is it for Andy and Lucy this episode. In fact, I don't think we even see very much of Andy. He's not involved in the One-Eyed Jack stuff. It's just this this moment here. And Cooper enters, and as he enters, he uh, blows into his little flute, which I love. Again, you know, whenever he does that, I just get such a huge kick out, out of it. It blows on his little whistle. And he uh, asks Lucy, oh, how are you, how are you doing? I, I know you were sick yesterday. And she I'm doing fine now, thank you. And he kind of looks at her like, mm, something's going on, but he's got other stuff to handle. I love how Lucy tells Andy it's peak activity time at the office switchboard. So <laughs> she can't talk to him now. So we may find out soon what's going on with all of this. Mystery, mystery. 
This is the second episode of Nothing for Andy's Misfire. They introduced that, uh, but they haven't done much with it since. And uh, what we get with Cooper's past this episode is him denying having any secrets to Audrey. That's an interesting moment. I like that. So we've already heard him talk about a woman who showed him heartbreak and all of that and the, the pain of responsibility and all this stuff. And now he is uh, saying to Audrey, oh, no, I don't have any secrets. So either that's not a secret or he's lying to herself and him. This is the third episode of no truly standalone scenes, which aren't part of ongoing stories. This is such a plotty show at this point. There's so much going on. They don't really have time for like little cute non sequiturs. They find moments for that within these scenes, you know, like Cooper's great speech to Harry. It's within a scene where they're dealing with other plots. The only subplots that we have not heard anything. So with all this plots going on, you know, we'd think, some stuff has fallen by the wayside, but the only things we haven't heard about for four or more episodes are the Teresa Banks case since the pilot and the Micah Donna relationship since episode one. Now here's something interesting. There is no uncanny this episode, and this is the first episode of Twin Peaks that has lacked any element of that. No psychic stuff, no dream uh, kind of logic. Um, there might be a reference to a dream somewhere, but I can't even think of one offhand. You know, even like, hey, the curtain's in my dream or whatever or something. It's just like, no, they're totally focused on this down-to-earth investigation at this point. And it makes you wonder, like, how can the uncanny come back into this? Like, is that was it just used to get further to that? Is there more? So we'll have to wait and see. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow we will cover the current events going on around when this episode aired in May 1990, what's on the cover of Time Magazine, what was on TV that night, what was in the news, etc. So I'll see you then.